Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello, and welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on fixing things in front of guests, an etiquette spy who sent us a shocking place setting to decode, changing others, lunchroom conversation letdowns, and one dress to impress. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on baby showers. For awesome etiquette sustaining members, your extra question of the week is about guest rooms. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. So it snowed. <laughs> You noticed. Just a little. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Dude, I was literally not stuck at my house. I live in town, so it's not like stuck at my house like when I grew up and you really stuck until the plow guy or your farming neighbor comes by with some equipment and gets you out. But it was I was definitely stuck between just the snow that one person shoveling a driveway when you're snowblower will not start like I I physically can't start my snowblower. I can start my lawnmower with the pull chain just fine. I can start the weed whacker with the pull chain just fine. Good for I you. cannot start the snowblower. And it was when we had like two feet of snow, a foot and a half in Burlington. At least. At least. It's so much snow. And it wasn't horrible to shovel it. But I got to the point where the plow had then done its thing where it's like plow and it's just ice build up. And I was like, I physically can't get out of this. Thank goodness I've got the nicest neighbor on earth who has a plow on his truck. And about a day after a storm, he comes around to all of us that are kind of like next to his property and, and does our driveways. And it just, it makes me cry when I see it happen. I'm like, I'm free. Oh my God. And then I get outside and my car doesn't start. I'm like, I'm stuck here for another two days. It's a good thing Chris wanted to move the podcast. That is so nice. Like No, so nice. Like, so nice. <laughs> when we say a foot and a half, it, I'm not talking weather here because it becomes more than weather. It becomes a phenomenon in your life to have well, that much snow. You experience it differently, though, because you're on the mountains. So you guys already had an accumulation for the season. And then you got this and you always get a few inches more than we do in the valley because you just... You're up there. <laughs> I, I told you this story already. I'm shoveling over my head. I know. When I go out your the front arms, door. I feel bad for your shoulders all the time. <laughs> I've, I've got this whole system now where I, I go out for a half hour to 40 minutes because you can't try to tackle it all at once. No, you cannot. So you think of your day as having a series of 
I go out and shovel windows. Yes. Okay, I'm going to go out after dinner. I'm going to go out just before bed. Yep. I'm going to go out in the, the morning one, right the before Anisha wakes up. <laughs> Maybe that's the worst one. <laughs> Although I had a country mouse, city mouse moment. Did you? And I'm thinking in these terms because I watch a lot of YouTube nursery rhymes and stories <laughs> these days. And I went from country mouse where it is – it's kind of magical. It's kind of amazing right now. The snowbanks are up over your head. Everything oh, yeah. is just under this blanket. It's kind of incredible once you're shoveled out and your stove is going and you're warm and toasty and cozy. <laughs> Drove into town for the first time yeah. and I started thinking to myself, I think it's worse in here because there's nowhere yes. for the snow to go. Bingo! <laughs> so there's this six to eight inch slush everywhere. Parking lots are tiny. You can't see around any corners. That was a big thing for me driving here today. I was like, this is unsafe. <laughs> I was saying to Chris as I walked into the studio, every drive is an extra 10, 15 minutes right now. It just takes longer. Take a deep breath, drive slow, <laughs> enjoy these moments. They don't last forever. It wouldn't be so bad if it was just the snow, but it has also been sub-zero. Not below freezing, so but sub-zero. Today is the warmest day we've had in a while. Like, and, and it's at something like 5, 10 degrees, and it feels balmy. Balmy? Really? Are we really going to use that term? Because my cheeks still hurt. <laughs> it's like the end of winter when you see people skiing in their shorts. No, it's Because not. it's up to 35 degrees. Dan's crazy. Don't and, listen to it. And then it goes up totally to 40, 45, to you right and you're now. wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> you know me too well. I'm a total comfort zone human. <laughs> I'm happier when it's somewhere between 80 and 90 degrees. And that's not a joke. I really like it about 85. I turn the heat up in my car so much I have to peel off all the layers. And <laughs> when I get home, Pooj and I have this constant back and forth where I'm turning the thermostat up and she's turning it back down. She's home all day wearing two or three layers and I get home and turn it up and she's like, it's so hot in here. She's taking off sweaters and long underwear. We've talked about the weather enough. Should we talk a little football? Just a little bit? Is it still too painful? Is it too fresh? I understand. Okay, we'll save that discussion for a week or two down the road. Let's get to some questions. Let's do it. Awesome etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to StoryWorth. 
storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, please email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or send us a text message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. And sustaining members, remember, please put sustaining member in your message. Your questions are answered from a smaller pool. Our first question this week is about fixing or cleaning in front of guests. Dear Dan and Lizzie, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and a fourth-generation user of Emily Post Books of Etiquette. I have a quick question regarding entertaining with silver. When entertaining formally or informally, depending on the situation, and using silver, the cleanup process is a bit time-sensitive. As you probably know, a variety of substances can tarnish or corrode silver. I just recently had an episode where I was entertaining some friends and relatives with a charcuterie spread and some olives ruined the silver bowl I had them in. I knew I needed to get them out of the bowl and rinse it promptly, but I've always been taught it is rude to clean up while guests are still enjoying the party. Is there a polite way to do this? I hate going to an event where the host or hostess starts jerking up plates and cutlery and washing them while everyone is still socializing. However, I don't want all of my silver accoutrement ruined. What should I do? Signed, Hopeless in Alabama. Hopeless. It's not hopeless. This is really at the discretion of the host, and it, it kind of depends on the situation. Doing the dishes for the main course while everyone waits for you in the den to serve them coffee and dessert definitely is a bit odd. Bordering um, on rude? <laughs> yeah, definitely barring on rude. But quickly washing out the olive bowl when you notice that it's starting to tarnish the silver that's insane. Oh, my gosh, I didn't realize. Hang on one second. Let me change out this bowl. That's absolutely fine. It's going to take you, what, maximum 30 seconds probably to make that happen and to even clean out the bowl, set it aside to dry dry, and put the olives in a new bowl and set them out. That's completely reasonable. If you're worried about a situation, for instance, like the silver, and you really do have dessert where, you know, you're going to serve dessert and coffee, it's going to be a longer time before you actually get to those dishes once your guests have left. And you don't want whatever um, dinner you serve to be lingering on those items. And so oftentimes my mom will put all the silver into just a bowl or a, a like a baking dish of soapy water. And it just sits there. It starts to help it get clean um, and, and mitigate those effects. If you're entertaining in such a fashion, as it would be odd for the hostess to perform any kind of task like this. It might be odd if the hostess is serving plates to people because you actually have some staff or, you know, the the neighborhood kid has come to be the staff for the party. However you've arranged it, whether it's household staff that you employ year-round, it's someone from the caterers, you want to let those folks handle these types of things. And so if you are entertaining in, in that kind of way, in that kind of formal way, then it's perfectly all right to remove the bowl and, and ask um, one of your helpers for the evening to take care of it for you. And then you can stay and socialize and those olives will be back in just a second. (laughs) I like that formal option. I also liked your language in the more informal situation. Pardon me a minute. Excuse me just a minute. I'm going to do something quickly in the kitchen. It doesn't even need to be something that you have to explain about or get into a lot of details about. But 
those little magic words really are magic. They will help account for that that moment, that brief absence when you step aside. I also liked your big picture strategizing and thinking. <laughs> I've seen your mother's soapy yes. dishes laid out. And part of it's just it's nice. You get them soaking. It's oh, a yeah. nice way to manage things as they come back to the kitchen. I hadn't thought about saving the silver mm-hmm. as being part of that. It is also important just to mention or it's worth mentioning that um, there is silver that has coating, stainless steel coating, yep. and you might be able to find a bowl that fits in with your silver oh, yeah. silver to handle those kinds of items. I was also thinking that if you wanted to to stay at that to really nice tableware, you might get some crystal yep. that works and maybe a couple of elements that are served or presented in crystal bowls can be another way to mix in with some silver but also – use tableware that's appropriate for what you're serving. Absolutely. A lot of times you'll also find little glass inserts for your silver. They have them, for instance, my mom has some really cool little silver salt dishes and they have little glass inserts because the salt will ruin the silver. And you, that's actually one of those funny points of etiquette that you wouldn't know unless you you were used to serving or experiencing this type of thing, that that silver spoon, you don't want it just resting in the salt all night long. And so there, that's like a little little tiny etiquette thing. But you do, you, you see that quite often and you could easily buy some small glass bowls to put inside of these silver bowls for things like olives and these other damaging items. Hopeless in Alabama... Thank you for submitting your question. It's got me thinking about that Gorham silver that I inherited from my grandparents that actually sits in their felt wrapper so that it doesn't corrode over time. And I'm thinking maybe I should get that out and enjoy serving with it just a little bit more. Take care. Now our hostess feels better about the olives, but right away she sees something else. next question is titled etiquette spies among us and i love this question because it's in the moment this was like action jackson here hello lizzie and dan i'm at a wedding and very confused by the place setting is there a specific occasion or tradition where the following is correct the spoon is on the left the knife is along the top and the fork is on the right also, the water glass was placed in the center, and it's actually the center top of the setting. Thank you so much. I love your podcast, Nicole. And we know where that water glass is because there was a picture yes. that came with this question that I really appreciated seeing because it answered some questions that had started to emerge in my mind. What exactly is going on here? And in the picture, the other thing that I found unique is that the Silverware isn't silver, it's gold or Mm -hmm. yellow. Which I've seen that before. That's a style that's come out in the past few years, something different. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. But I am also looking at this and now seeing, do you notice the glass? So we are, of course, going to post you all a picture of this. The glass is actually upside out. Perplexing to say the least, we will leave you, our great listeners, to judge this any way you would like, maybe positively. We could have people who say, hey, this would really work for me. It definitely didn't work for Nicole, though, and we can't find a logical reason based on anything. Yep, there's no reason for this logically, for how or why this is set up this way, and it leads me to believe that that means it is a creative place setting. These happen. They aren't necessary. And if someone who's planning your event tries to convince you to do one, let them know that it confuses guests more than it is cool or picture worthy. In fact, it often will get ridiculed in pictures. So just as a heads up, it's not something you can't do. 
It's just really awkward for everybody else. I like your description of it as creative because that's definitely when I saw the gold, the yellow, I was saying to myself, oh, they're just being creative or different. And we talk a lot on this show about how manners change, evolve, Mm -hmm. adapt over time. Table manners are an example of the manners that usually change the most slowly. It's because people do have certain expectations at the table. And because those ways of doing things are so established, it does raise questions in people's minds. They end up taking pictures and sending them to Etiquette Podcast because they're just wondering about what it is <laughs> yeah, exactly. they're seeing. Other examples of this that we've received pictures of and heard about, utensils that are set on the diagonal. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Too. Or where forks are nested in spoons or, or silver oh, is yes, crossed. Oh, yes, everything's stacked up on itself. Or um, I've also found things like just everything at the top. Everything like like fork, knife, spoon right at the top of your setting. And I think that was to try to save elbow room space, but it didn't – that does – your arms are still attached to your body. You're still going to be like <laughs> – that's great, but You're going to need what? a little bit of room like, once you get into action. To, like move to try to eat. <laughs> well, and we're wondering about that second knife and I – also liked how you noticed the glass flipped upside down. Not something I'm a big fan of. No. Just leave the thing that I'm going to be drinking out of up in the air, clean, presented the way I'm going to use it. Nicole, this struck us as a little odd, but it was also a lot of fun. And the ultimate point here is that you still use those utensils the way you know how to use them. That's the the thing that's going to get you through right. the initial confusion that a creative, in quotes, place setting often presents you with. Correct. You do not have to use your fork and knife in opposite hands. You don't have to drink from an upside-down glass. Nicole, thank you for this question and for the picture. It was absolutely necessary. A napkin is out of place. The butter knife belongs on the butter dish, not next to the meat knife. And a water glass is missing. Small matters, but they are important when they show whether or not your habits of etiquette are correct. See if you notice right away when someone is incorrect or is definitely correct. Our next question is titled, Changing Others. Hi, Awesome Etiquette. I'm a relatively new listener and enjoy the lessons of the podcast. I was wondering, what is a polite way to directly address rude behavior and inform the person their behavior is unacceptable? Some searching around seems to indicate that it should just be ignored or the person avoided, but that is not always an option. Thanks for the advice and the awesome podcast. Adam. Adam, thanks for asking this question because it's often actually at the heart of what a lot of other listeners are asking. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is that we cannot change others. We can't. You can tell them about how their actions and words impact you. You know, we can even make suggestions for better ways to interact moving forward with someone. But once we've done those things, the advice of ignore it or end the relationship does become a lot of what you hear advised because you can't forcibly get someone else to change. Sometimes in work environments, you you do get to persist because there is a very real structure, even a legal structure sometimes to someone's behavior, depending on what the, the issue or the behavior is. But outside of work environments, you really are kind of in this space of you can either keep trying to show someone how they impact you and to talk with them about how they impact you. 
But beyond that, you really can't do much about it. And so standing up for yourself is always something Dan and I will advocate for. And doing that in the most polite way possible is a good idea because it gives the best chance at the other person being less defensive and more willing to hear you. But short of that, then it does become up to you to either ignore something and and move on from it or to remove yourself from the situation. And That advice comes for very easy situations where you really can just extricate yourself simply all the way up through ones where you're moving out of your parents' home because you can't handle it or it's not working. And we in the show and especially in just the span of this one question can't address all of those moments and only you are going to be able to know the exact um, safety of the situation that you're in and the the relationships and your own personality. Are you the type of person who wants to try and work on something and give someone the benefit of the doubt? Or are you the type of person who will feel safer, better, more able to move on and move forward if you extricate yourself from it? It is such a quick question and yet it's it is such a fundamental question and a fundamentally important question there's so many things to talk about and part of that is because it is broad that we don't have enough specifics to help narrow down the answer to say well oh in this situation i'd think of it in this way or in in this situation i'd approach it from this perspective where you're going to start to have some clues about how you might handle it thinking about those broad answers i think lizzie you touched on what I would call the the most important things, which is that you can only control what you can control. And that advice that you're hearing that you ignore the person or avoid it or or move on, those are all things that you have a lot of control over. And some of the biggest challenges that that we face are when we're confronted with things that aren't good. (laughs) When you're dealing with people that are poised and gracious, it's much easier to be poised and gracious. But when you're confronted with rude behavior, which is by definition disturbing, Mm -hmm. in some way offensive, offensive, emotionally harmful, by our definition where we talk about etiquette being considerate, respectful, honest behavior, when you're confronted with rudeness, you're talking about a situation where someone's being inconsiderate or disrespectful or maybe even dishonest in some way. Mm -hmm. And that can feel very personal. And and sometimes it is very personal. I mean, that's, you know, we tell people all the time, don't take something personally. Sometimes something is personal. And that can complicate it even more in trying to come up with a rational response and set a boundary that feels like a comfortable, willing boundary to set. And it's both your, I kind of want to call it your responsibility in the situation to take that high road, but it's also to your benefit that ultimately... Being able to handle those things and manage them in a way that doesn't end up feeling like it corrupts you internally is is taking control of the situation. You can't take control of someone else, but you can take control of the situation by managing how you respond and how you participate, how you participate. Adam, I'm sorry that this isn't a more uplifting answer in a lot of ways, but I hope that it makes you feel like you are more in the driver's seat of your own experiences, even though other people can very truly impact that. So the thing to do is to figure out what's possible or reasonable, and then you aim high, and you try for a lot, but you don't count on it. Good. You do understand, Howard. Our next question is titled Lunchroom Letdown. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast, and I'm greatly enjoying going through past episodes to hear your wonderful advice. I'm a high school teacher at my alma mater, 
where I work with some of my own former teachers. This change in relationship from teacher-student to co-worker had some growing pains, but my now fellow teachers have made the transition pretty smooth overall. However, now that I'm at the adult table in the cafeteria, I have noticed a terrible trend in the lunch conversation. Working with students is our occupation, so a little work talk about concerns for student performance or behavior and tips for dealing with a particular student is common and welcome. I benefited as a first-year teacher from their advice. However, I am struggling with the conversation when it veers into the personal. Commenting on a student's appearance, behavior, friends, interests, hygiene, etc., It seems that any student who isn't attractive, trendy, athletic, and popular is labeled weird and written off as unimportant. I take this a little personally. I was the academic, artsy, introverted type and cannot imagine what they may have said about my friends and me when we were in school. Also, I spend more time monitoring and providing extracurricular activities for the students they label as weird. Mostly, I cringe to think how students would feel if they were to pass by and hear the conversation. I fear the day that a comment from the lunch conversation will be picked up by a student and used to bully a classmate. Is there a polite way to steer this conversation in a different direction? I've tried changing the subject, not participating, gently defending a student, or offering a different perspective. I'm an introvert, and the youngest at the table, and their former student— I naturally avoid direct personal confrontation, but there have been instances recently where I have been personally offended or offended on behalf of a student and had to literally bite my tongue to keep from issuing a snarky retort. Any advice? Please note this is only a small group of our mostly wonderful faculty, and the rest of the teachers are assigned to other lunch locations or schedules or spend their lunches working in their rooms. This is what I do most of the time when I am not on assigned duty to this location. Thank you for all you do, CC. CC, thank you for this question. I'm also appreciating the way Lizzie Post set up the show because I think this question follows well our previous question. I think so too. This is an example of behavior that's rude and maybe starts to rise to that level of rudeness where you might want to think about how you deal with it, how you confront these people about it or talk to them about it. And I, and I hear a lot of that thinking in the way you've posted this question to us. But I just want to acknowledge that this is a really difficult situation and that it it does present you with a, a pretty unique etiquette challenge. Yeah, and I'm 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 going to not be quite as tempered when I speak about this. My degree was in art education and I did student teaching at my alma mater and and got to work with teachers that were my teachers when I was a child and and that was really exciting and it was a really great experience. I cannot tell you how angry I was when I read this. If any kid in that lunchroom heard the things that a teacher was saying about them, whether it was about their personality or their behavior one day or something. Now, there are funny things that we all do that are silly, stupid things. We're human. We can laugh at ourselves. You know, it, it, it happens. But kids are more vulnerable. And when you're a teacher, you are a safe zone. You're supposed to be a safe zone for children. You are supposed to be that that neutral party in a lot of ways. And to take that away and to potentially then 
allow it to be a bullet that could be used by a bully. And I'm going to say it that way just because I do think that bullying can turn that way. There's teasing and then there's bullying. And, you know, teasing can happen between friends anytime, but bullying is really mean with intent to be destructive and hurtful. And some people do that. They, they lash out at others and they do that. And it would be really easy to say to another kid, oh, even Mr. or Mrs. or, you know, this teacher, or that teacher, even they think that about you. And how damaging, how much does that just make school not a safe place for a kid anymore? And that is just, I can't handle that. So my advice doesn't even come on the soft level for this one. You go to the administration with this. This is potentially damaging to kids. And it's fine if at a bar you want to sit and, and, and go off on the kids you don't like because you're an adult that feels they need to do that in order to vent throughout the day. Fine. Go be that person. But don't do it in the lunchroom where those kids can hear it. And don't do it where you're affecting other people who are trying to teach them and bring them up well and make them feel supported. I'm going to let Dan step off and handle the, just the rest of the advice with this. But my only answer to this question is, Cece, go to the administration. Tell them what you've heard. Tell them your concerns. And if they don't listen, please continue. Continue to speak up because you have a, a great environment, it sounds like there, aside from this one small group that just is not getting how bad this could really get. It's hard to hear this question and not go back to your high school days and oh, yeah. in your mind and remember the mean girls or the popular clique that that felt like it was impenetrable in some way or that made life really difficult for other people. And in some ways, this is a, a group of teachers participating in that type of of mentality that can be really difficult. I appreciate that you both recognize this isn't everybody that you work with and that it's also something you have to deal with a certain percentage of the time, that there are other times when you're able to remove yourself from the situation. Another option, the the more indirect way that you might deal with something like this would be to remind yourself that change doesn't happen quickly or easily, that all of the things that you've talked about doing in your question are the type of advice we would offer for stage one response. Redirect conversation, talk about how hearing those things makes you feel, the confronting the nature of the conversation, but doing it in a way that's not confrontational, that's not accusatory or blaming of the people that are doing it who might not even fully realize how potentially hurtful what they're doing is. That might not be heard the first time. It might not be heard the second time. It might not be heard the third time. Sometimes the process of being part of change is a process of being consistent, being willing to stick with it, being willing to stay present with the way that you feel about it and to hold firm in that and to stay present with the situation despite that discomfort that you feel long enough and you acknowledge that you're a former student and new to this situation or relatively new to this situation and it might take a little time for you to build up the standing to be heard and that might be your work in this situation and that don't don't be disheartened and don't feel like you're not making an impact that it requires people of goodwill and good intent to continue to engage in order to to make a change and hopefully this answer can give you some courage to keep that up and some fortitude to keep that up. Cece, the final thing that I'll say is that your opinion on this is valid. And 
just because there are three people at a lunchroom table with you, and I'm making up numbers here, saying or contributing to this negative conversation, it doesn't make your opinion about that conversation any less valid or less necessary. It, and so if you feel confident in continuing to speak it up, definitely continue to speak up that opinion because it's it's just absolutely as a I, I hate saying as appropriate because I don't find the other opinions appropriate. And yet in a world where everyone's allowed to have their opinion, they can have their opinions about those students. I just ask that they not air them in a place where those students could hear it. <laughs> like, And I think that, that that is something that you you should feel is a valid thing to continue to stand up for, even if the other people at that lunchroom table all think that this is the time to vent and it's the appropriate place to vent. Cece, thank you for challenging us with a really difficult situation. Please keep it up and continue to be that force for good in your school. Talking's lots of fun, except sometimes when you talk about people, that's when the trouble starts. Our final question today is titled, One Dress to Impress. One dress to rule them all? Yeah, that's totally what I was thinking of. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I love listening to your podcast and have become the go-to resource for my friends for etiquette questions since I began listening. My friend came to me with a question that I'd love to get your input on. My friend was asked to participate in two weddings, one as a bridesmaid and one as the maid of honor. Both brides have requested that their bridesmaids select their own dress, so long as it is floor length and a deep red color. Fortunate. The weddings are within a few weeks of each other. My friend would prefer not to buy two nice dresses in the same color so close to one another and was thinking of wearing the same dress to both weddings and dressing it up with different shoes, hair, makeup, and jewelry. The bride for the wedding in which she is the maid of honor also suggested her wearing a belt or something similar to differentiate herself from the other bridesmaids, which would further alter the look of the dress. Her question is... Is it okay to wear the same dress in two weddings? The weddings are for completely different friend groups from different parts of her life, and there will be no overlap in the guests attending the weddings. So the only way anyone would know would be social media posts. Thank you for the wonderful podcast. One dress to impress? (laughs) One dress to impress. Thank you so much for sending this question in. Here's the deal, though. If you continue listening to the rest of this podcast to listen to the answer to this question, you have to get the friend that asked you to ask the question on the podcast to sign up for the podcast. We've had a lot of you say that you are the person that is asking on behalf of your friend. And that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Get your friend to sign up for the podcast. (laughs) Get your friend to sign up for the podcast. Okay. The answer. Go for it. I'm so glad you said that. Are you kidding me? Yes, this Vermonter could not say, yeah, reuse something. Like, you have to, you reuse it. You reuse things, reuse things, reuse things. I think this is great. I think this is easy. I would double check with the brides just to be sure. I would have a backup dress in a similar color that works with the belt. Whichever wedding is second, I would just have a backup dress for that wedding just in case. Something you know is approved by the bride that you could go purchase last minute if you needed to and it would fit in your budget. Because if anything happens at the first wedding, 
to that dress, then you're out a dress without a plan and without an approved option. So I say when you get the approval for this dress and however you're going to wear it to differentiate it from the other wedding, I would make sure that you have a second option for that one. But I think this is great. I think that more friends who are all getting married the same year could do everyone a favor and coordinate their wedding colors. I'm just saying. Um, But it's it's like for reals. It's it's a thing. And these dresses get an extra like... $150 added to them when you say it's a bridesmaid dress. And so I think anything you can do to reduce that cost burden on people is important. The reason I'm so glad this was your answer is that, first of all, I didn't know the answer. I was saying to myself, (laughs) "Really? I'm hoping because this this is the way it works with suits. You can definitely (laughs) wear the same suit and you can put on a different tie, a different shirt. You can mix up enough other things. But a a dark suit, I think, goes less noticed Mm -hmm. when it gets worn in multiple occasions than maybe the same dress does. So I had this little question mark in my mind as I was reading this. What's Lizzie's answer going to be? Can you do it? And the fact that these are are not overlapping friend groups, I think, helps. I liked your idea of checking in with the bride just to be sure. But I think if there really isn't any overlap between the weddings, that shouldn't make a big difference to either party. To me, even if there is social overlap, as long as the brides are okay with the stress being in it, I don't think it matters. I like that answer, too, because okay. I, I, the place where my mind went was yeah, the social media cross that probably the bride from both weddings will see your social media posts or feed mm-hmm. and could see you wearing the same dress in the other's wedding. That's why you're talking about it with both of them first. That's why you have to talk with them first. But And at the, I still maintain, I wear the same dress to multiple weddings when I'm a guest. So really, like, what? Just, she stole my bridesmaid. No, that's, like, not what's going on here, dude. <laughs> like, it's not like, about your wedding being its own unique special snowflake that is like no other which is a perspective that i appreciate hearing from the wedding etiquette expert (laughs) my other thought on this one is that it might matter more to you than to either of the brides does it matter to you that someone would see in social media that you wore the same dress to multiple weddings over the course of a summer why do we care what social media sees us wearing (laughs) No, I know. Sometimes we do. I get it. I get it. I get it. I just that's like, don't make Facebook dictate your decision on this. (laughs) I'm liking this answer more and more. (laughs) One dress to impress. Thank you for the question and have a great time at both weddings. Don't spill anything. Thank you for your questions. You can send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or a text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on Twitter. We're at emilypostinst. Or you can reach us on Facebook where we're Awesome Etiquette or the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette in your post so that we know you want your question or feedback on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And this came from Evan regarding our picky eater from episode 227. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Since listening to episode 227, I keep thinking about the question from the picky eater. I believe that more respect and honesty with herself in regards to her own body is in order. It sounds like she makes a lot of fuss about her dietary restrictions, but then, in an effort to be polite, eats the food anyway. 
Her friends are not around later to see how sick she gets as a result of the food, so it appears to them that all of the complaining is for nothing. Though it may seem rude to turn down food more often, I imagine if she sticks to her guns, i.e. is more honest with herself and others, it will teach her friends that these dietary restrictions are real and not to be trifled with. Thanks so much, and I love the show. All the best, Evan. Evan, thanks so much for that comment because it is it is important for people who do have allergies and restrictions where eating food that doesn't fall within would make you sick. It's important for for them to feel confident standing up for that. I can't quite remember from episode 227 whether it was a significant other who was making this, so therefore someone that sees this person then at home afterwards and such, or whether this was a, f- a friend who was saying it to her. But I think you're you're right to give the confidence and to say, you know, really stand up for what you want and show people this. Some people aren't as comfortable having people know that kind of stuff. They don't want to talk about how it makes them sick, and especially when it comes to our stomachs. No matter what, Evan is right that it's it is up to you to let your friends know that these are real boundaries for you and it's okay if they're real boundaries. I personally get really stuck in the category of because I can be flexible about the things that I eat. It's it's really tough because there are times where it's just going to be easier for the host if I just simply go with what they've offered and there are other times where it's going to be a lot easier for me if I say no, but it's a choice for me. It's not always a choice for some people and I think that really being clear and consistent will help your friends start to absorb that choice that you're making. I love the way this feedback is grounded in the concept of honesty. Yeah. It's a great example of the way a, a principle can give you some clues about ways you might proceed in a situation where there are a lot of choices. That What is really honest here? If I'm honest with myself about not wanting to eat these things, maybe being honest with my host is a way to have that confidence in making that decision and being clear about it. Evan, thank you for this feedback, and thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or send us a text message to 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's postscript is about baby shower etiquette. With so many of you writing in about baby showers over the past few months, we figured it was time for a little baby shower primer. I thought so. I thought this was a, a good idea. We had the the question uh, recently about the thank you notes that were given, and they were hand hand pre-addressed, so that meant they were definitely being used for this particular baby shower. And and I think that a lot of people have written in, too, about um, the number of people that they're inviting, as well as opening gifts in front of other people. And it just felt like a good time to go over everything that's related to baby showers. So to start us off, let's talk about the timing of the party. And that is generally something you try to do before the baby comes because you're trying to often shower someone with all the things that they're going to need. So you don't want week one to be like, oh, that party's a month away. Be real nice to have that for dear diaper cake right now. Um, but it's not, not the way it works. Other people, especially when they are set up and really kind of just need more of the accessory items, um, will host a shower after the baby's born because then people can often meet the baby too. Been to both, loved them both. Either way, do what works for you. But in terms of the time, it's perfectly fine. 
Usually showers are given about four to six weeks before the baby's due date. We're kind of, once you get into that last month, it's kind of like, who knows? Baby could come any point really, right? So you do try to do about a month or a month and a half before the baby's due date. And any parents who do receive gifts in advance of the birth, um, they have the advantage of knowing what additional items they're going to need to buy or borrow once the baby comes. And so that can really help people kind of fill in the gaps on those lists that they've gotten their heads. So the functionality of the shower, sort of the way it was traditionally thought of, that four to six week window is really ideal, but that doesn't mean you can't do it later <laughs> Exactly. if that ends up being the thing that works for you and everyone. I really like the ones that happen later personally because it's often a much easier way to meet the baby. Like it is, it's carving out two hours for an afternoon where a ton of people are going to be here. Baby might be up, baby might not be up, but man, you really check a lot of people off that list. I think it's a good idea. So how do you get people there? Yeah, so invitations, definitely. (laughs) You invite people. And this is where things get a little mixed and it's really going to depend on your your guest list. And before we even say invitations... I am going to say that it's really important to keep your guest list somewhat small for this event. You can host as many showers as you want. You can have different groups of people. You divide your friends however you want. A lot of people do a shower with people from work or special interest groups. They do a shower with their family, and then they do a a shower with their peers and their friends. And that is perfectly fine. What's not fine is if your guest list combining all those three groups end up being a 30, 40, 50, 60 person shower, you are not going to have time to open gifts. You are not going to really have enough time to spend with a lot of those guests. It is going to make it a lot harder to try and organize and deal with thank you notes and all those things. So I really, really suggest that while it can be tempting from a calendar scheduling point to just do one party and leave it at that, spread it out. Do not invite more than between 10 and 20, maybe 25 people. But think about how long it takes to open a gift, ooh and all over it for a moment, mingle with folks, and you're really going to see that you're going to want to keep that shower small. So once you've decided that you are going to keep your shower small and have multiple of them, now you can think about sending your invitations out. Store-bought fill-in invitations are totally fine. They come in a wide variety of designs, and you can really find something personal that works for you, and they are perfectly appropriate. Again, those often have words like who, what, where, when, you know, written on it, and you you fill in the blanks just after them. You could do hand-designed or you could do calligraphy. There's no reason why you couldn't. It will indicate that it is a more formal function to people, so you might just have people really expecting to show up to a more formal baby shower. Uh, More than anything, I get baby shower invitations via Evite. The Evites are fine. I would not include guest lists on the Evites, and I would make sure that I select an Evite service that does not create ads for my guests. I have been really upset with people, and obviously I haven't told them I was upset with them, but I was really upset with a number of baby showers I've been invited to lately where the service that they used for the Evite blasts me with all kinds of um, extra tasks, first of all. I could only access 
access the registry through that particular site, which meant I had to create a login for that site. And then on every single email and exchange and page that I clicked on, I was blasted with ads throughout the whole process. It was so it was so uncomfortable, the whole thing. I thought it was totally unnecessary. Pick services that don't do that to people. If you do do fill-in cards or handwritten or printed invitations, you want to take your registry information and put it on a completely separate sheet of paper and include that with your thing. You can do a little business card. You can do a little um, handwritten note with it on it if you need to. You can print something up, but do not put that particular information on the actual invitation. What do you think about how you let people know about a a shower theme? This is a library or a book shower or a... Again... That kind of info I would include on an insert, separate enclosure. So with that registry information, you could say things like the nursery is being painted these colors or these are, you know, this is the color scheme they're going for or this is the the theme of gift we're going for, books or something like that. And then you include that registry information. But you put those together separately, not on the actual invitation. And it's also really okay to spread this through word of mouth. Maybe you make sure that your RSVP is a phone number and they're calling or texting you. And therefore, you can respond directly and say, if you need any suggestions, please let me know. I'm happy to offer them. Or, you know, here are three of the things Jenna wanted me to communicate, you know, something like that. And that really, it does help facilitate it without it making seem like, hi, come to the shower. And this is what I want exactly. Because the host isn't the guest of honor. I think it makes it so much easier to communicate that information because you're, by definition, doing it on behalf of someone. It it makes that ask more comfortable in some way. And I think that that word of mouth is a really easy, nice way to to get that news out. Speaking of hosting, anyone can host a shower nowadays. It really doesn't matter. It's okay if a mom would like to host a shower for her daughter, if a dad would like to host a shower for his son. It's completely fine. It's perfectly appropriate. Oftentimes, kind of one person from whatever group the shower and and guest list is with will organize things. And it's perfectly fine if it's mom, if it's sister, if it's aunt, doesn't matter. Um, Best friends can host. At work, there's usually one point person who's really good at these things and ends up hosting them for people. And that's a change. We, We used to say that immediate family didn't host a shower. The idea was that it seemed like a a bit of an inappropriate ask for gifts because gift giving is the main event at a shower where you're showering someone with gifts. The realities of the way people live today is that oftentimes that's the person who's really the most relevant, the most important, obvious choice to do that hosting. And it's more important that the shower happen than that you avoid giving what was at one point seen as a bad impression. Exactly. And you're we're much more independent from our parents than we used to be. You are not looked at as a woman who's being given from one household to another anymore. Thank goodness. And so you're an individual and you've you've been around. A lot of us, you know, have babies in our 40s and are on our own. And so you're having a mom there to step in and do this for her adult daughter who's been independent for years. It's just it's not a problem. Having a dad who wants to support a son who's adopting on his own. I mean, that's like it's okay. Is really we're okay with it now. I also want to thank you for including fathers and sons. We've talked on this show about the Jack and Jill showers mm-hmm. where couples host and or yeah, yours was a Jack couples and Jill. are invited and 
the attendees, the guests are invited as couples and it's it can be a lot of fun and it's nice to be included being a man well, and, <laughs> in all of this fun. But honestly, I also think about there are men. I mean, there's not tons of men who adopt on their own, but there are men who will adopt on their own. And there are plenty of gay men who have children and they deserve to have showers and be celebrated as dads and as first time dads and as second and third time dads. And so I just I really I, I want our language to change on that in particular. What else should the host keep in mind? Okay, so it's not so much that hosts should avoid it, but games need to be discussed with the honoree ahead of time. I find few people who enjoy these games, but I know that they are out there. But it seems trendy to say you don't like them. Um, But at the same time, I know they happen on a widespread basis. There's suggestions for them on all kinds of entertaining blogs out there in the world. So take the time to ask your honoree if they would like games to be played, and if so, what games they find appropriate. You know, uh, guessing what names the mother-to-be would like is only a fun game if the mom-to-be is really open to that. Like doing a game where different candy bars are put into diapers. And if you are a person who likes that game, your host should know. And if you're a person who doesn't like that game, your host should definitely know. Um, and I would say that that ta- hosts really take take a minute to talk with your honoree about what they are expecting. Um, hosts are expected to pay for the event. Your honoree doesn't pay for their own party. And hosts, whether they, they do a group thing to help spread those costs out or what, we had a question a couple weeks ago where someone had a party lumped onto them and was expecting that the people who had originally hosted would have had a budget that they then could have used Nope. When you take on new hosting roles, you're really starting with your own budget unless you've been offered things that have already been purchased for the event. And it was clear in that situation they hadn't been. But you are on the hook for this, and and you should think of it that way. You also want to think of yourself as a supporting role in this um, gathering you are not the host where everyone will do everything around you. You are the host who is doing things for the honoree. Often you will be the person setting things out, clearing them away, unless you've hired people to do that for you. You are the person who is going to be maybe keeping track of the gifts or piling all of the the wrappings into the recycling or garbage. Um, They aren't glamorous moments in your party hosting. This isn't like, yay moment, you know, but it's they are the things that are going to help move things forward. And they are your responsibility. That moving things forward is one of my favorite hosting tips. (laughs) One of the things you'll hear about showers going awry is when it just gets too long. Yep. When things just go on and on and on and and having some idea of what your schedule for the afternoon is or the evening is and keeping on that schedule, keeping that gift opening happening on track, starting soon enough so that it finishes on time is one of the kindest things you can do as a host for your guests as well as your guest of honor. Absolutely. The final thing we are going to end on is that under no circumstances should guests be asked to write their own addresses, nor should they be asked to write their own thank you notes, nor should one person stand up and absolve all thank you notes from being written. Now, I know that the, <laughs> that last one has to do with guests, less less easy to control it, um, but offer to help your uh, honoree by giving, as the host, you can give them the list of all the addresses. If you did an email 
Evite and don't have it, you can instead offer to collect all of the addresses. We've heard awesome suggestions in our last show about that, putting index cards in a basket and saying we're building our address book. That is very, very different from putting envelopes in a basket and asking someone to self-address a thank you note. One is appropriate. One is not. And that's just it. So definitely offer to help. Do what you can. Allow the gratitude to come from the honoree. And most of all, don't forget that this is supposed to be fun. This is showering someone with gifts. I mean, this is like big moments of generosity. Dan was lit up like a Christmas tree at his shower. He had so much fun. He had no idea showers could be that way. He was delighted. It was really fun to watch you just enjoy it. They are a wonderful time. They are amazingly helpful. They make moms and dads-to-be feel really special, especially right before everything is going to change. The world is really going to change when that baby comes. And so this is a fun way to celebrate just before that happens. I couldn't agree more. Lizzie Bose, thank you for taking us through this postscript. It definitely loomed out there after (laughs) a lot of the, the discussion a few weeks ago and some of the feedback we got on it. As the party ends... The men assist the ladies with their chairs, and the gentlemen escort their ladies from the dining room. Their party a success. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we hear from Anne. Hello. I want to make an etiquette salute to our waiter, Muhammad, who was quick to notice that my chicken was undercooked He had stopped by our table to check on us at about the moment that I had cut into a piece of meat that looked pink. I did not have to say a thing. He noticed me examining my food and almost instantly swooped in to grab my plate and offer a replacement. I was quite impressed that he picked up on this so quickly without a word from me and did not hesitate to fix my meal. Thank you. Best, Anne. Man, safety before etiquette. It sounds like Mohammed can make both a priority. My hero, undercooked chicken is so scary. Foul. It's scary. It's oh, 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 And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. That's Lizzie with an I-E. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. On Facebook, we are both Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Consider helping us out by becoming a sustaining member. You can learn more about it by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or now Spotify. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps with our podcast rank. Our show is edited by the amazing Chris Albertine, an assistant produced by the unfortunately injured Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Chris and Bridget. Thanks, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.